Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for the Living. Welcome to my weekly From My Mama's Kitchen talk radio show. My guest for this morning is award-winning writer Marissa Labozita. Marissa and I will be discussing her passion for storytelling and discuss her latest short stories collection, Teas Never Steal in the Rain. Good morning, Marissa. Welcome back to From My Mama's Kitchen talk Hi, radio. Johnny. Nice to talk to you. Wonderful. It is a pleasure to have you in here with me. It has been three years since we last talked about your wonderful, wonderful novel, Sometimes It Snows in America. So I'm really excited to have you on the air with me. And I have to tell you, Thieves Never Steal in the Rain is a wonderful and entertaining read. It's certainly a page turner, so congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let us start by getting to know you a little better because it's been three years, so we have a bunch of new listeners. Tell us about your childhood and walk us through your life up to the present moment. Okay, well, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in the midst of a very large, extended Italian-American family. My father and uh, his parents had emigrated from Italy, and my other grandparents also. Uh, We lived in the Mapleton-Bensonhurst neighborhood. uh, That was the little Italy of Brooklyn, and it really remained uh, like that far longer than the little Italy of Manhattan that was more famous. Uh, In in addition to our parents, you know, we had aunts and uncles um, who took part in in, uh, we cousins' rearing. And, you know, they played with us, cared for us, uh, they took us places, and they had no problem scolding us (laughs) at any time. Um, You know, there was never a question for us of where we were going to be on a Saturday afternoon or a holiday, including New Year's Eve. Our parents were not, uh, you know, party mongers going out anywhere. We were always at my grandparents, or we were always together. Uh, I lived um, for some of my teenage years on Long Island, uh, just a few years. I left after graduation to attend college. I went to Boston, Boston College. I studied uh, foreign languages. They were, and they still are, very important to me uh, and my family and my children. Mm -hmm. My father was a language teacher. He really instilled that in us. And, of course, coming in a bilingual family, um, you know, that set the the standard there. And so Mm -hmm. I majored in in Spanish uh, and secondary education. I taught high school for a brief time. I moved to Washington, D.C. I was a teaching fellow in languages and linguistics at Georgetown. I taught, I worked in the Office of Bilingual Education, and then I met my husband. We moved to New Mexico because he was at the time in the National Health Service Corps. We began a family, eventually moved back east, to be, of course, closer to family, and uh, that's where we've been ever since. I'm in Northampton, Massachusetts now. We've been there for quite some time. Very interesting. Growing up, when did you realize you liked reading and basically words? And basically words, did you say? Yes. Oh, interesting. Um, I knew a writer who I remember he said, uh, poets deal with words and writers deal with sentences. But I think it's, it's <laughs> I think we deal with words, too. Yeah. Um, I was uh, really fortunate, you know, to have parents uh, from you know, who were from that generation 
uh, because not everyone did from uh, the immigrants who came. They had come from peasant families. But I was fortunate to have parents who really, you know, knew the importance of books. Um, I lived around the corner from the public library um, where my mother took me very often. And uh, I, you know, at an early age, I could go by myself because I didn't have to cross the street. And uh, yeah. I was so aware, even as a child, of how privileged I was, you know, to have that library in my backyard. Other um, kids I went to school with would have to take buses to get there. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I, you know, I could just skate there or just, you know, walk right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love to read short stories and um, real-life essays. My mother had some women's magazines and that she would buy, and I would read them in McCall's and all those uh, Vogue. At that time, everyone had short stories in them. Now no one has anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my my mother, it's a shame, because in, in the world of small sound bites, I don't quite get it, because everything yeah. has become like a short story, every article. <laughs> and yet, you know, somehow the publishing world told us, no, you know, we don't want to read them. My mother, um, she always had books and magazines everywhere, including the bathroom, and that's where I would even go in and devour the Reader's Digest. Um, I think I fell in love with reading, though, when uh, I was lying sick in bed, which seemed to me happen quite often, I don't know, seemed to always be sick, I guess kids are. And I remember started to read some adult novels. My mother gave me this book. I was bored. She gave me this book to read. And it was a large um, adult novel. And uh, it was called Mrs. Mike. And it was about a young Bostonian woman who married a, a Mountie in the Yukon. And that book it just you know, opened up a world for me, uh, not just geographically. It was far from anything you know, I'd ever known about or experienced, but with regards to maturity, because, you know, talked about falling in love, marriage, uh, relocating, the woman had to relocate, um, the pain of loss, because Mm -hmm. actually um, the pain of losing children is a major plot point in this book, and as it is in Thieves Never Steal in the Rain. Uh, And at the time, that really touched something so deep in me, you know, even at uh, a little young age, I might have been about 11 or so, And uh, my mother also had this very large leather-bound collection of the classics she had gotten when she was younger. And uh, I still have it, still up in my library, and uh, another biggie for me at that time. And for the same reasons, I remember was Green Mansions uh, by uh, William Henry Hudson, and it was about a tropical forest girl and romance. And, you know, that same reason that took me out of my world, and it was, again, a love story. And then I loved I loved Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, you know, read Mark Twain, mm-hmm. all from those books mm-hmm. that my mother had. I think that's when I, you know, really started to, uh, you know, enjoy reading. Very interesting. So when did you discover you liked writing? I liked writing. Uh, <laughs> when I moved... Um, I, you know, when I moved, and I think I may have told you this once before, when I moved from mm-hmm. the city to the suburbs yeah. in high school, you know, it was a lonely and a painful change for me. And um, my English teacher, I remember, asked me to write something to give her an idea of what I could do to show her because it was in the middle mm-hmm. of the term, and I wrote about my misery. <laughs> and she mm-hmm. uh, read it aloud <laughs> in class, and I was a little embarrassed. But nobody <laughs> laughed. Yeah. And uh, they were actually very taken with it, and I realized then that I could write and that, you know, writing had a power to it. As they say, mm-hmm. you know, I could win friends and influence people, and I think I made some yeah. friends then. Yeah. And then as, as a college freshman, I was remembering that, you know, I think I only got A's when I chose to write 
creative work. When I wrote, uh, I remember I wrote a parody on Shakespeare and one on a well-known mystery soap opera, and yeah. instead of critical pieces, and um, I didn't think. I started to take it seriously when I was working for the District um, of Columbia Office of Bilingual Education. I had a boss who was very interested in the arts, and he liked the way I wrote, and he told, he encouraged me to write, and I had my first piece published uh, in the former Washington Star newspaper. And uh, I think, you know, the rest is history. I just kept going from there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. When does writing become storytelling? When does it become storytelling? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's uh, you mean in the well, if your creative writing is storytelling, uh, yeah. Well, you know, you're taking something. It always, it almost always starts with something uh, that is actual, something that you've seen, something that uh, uh, could even be a phrase that you heard. Mm-hmm. Um, or something. And actually, I'll tell you about the title. Even the title of this book. I don't know if it, mm-hmm. you're curious about it. Why I mm-hmm. chose that title. But um, one day, I was leaving the house and uh, was pouring outside, and my husband asked, "Did you lock the door?" And then I said, "Oh, don't worry. Uh, you know, it's uh, thieves never steal in the rain." I said, "If they, yeah. if they were that ambitious, they'd get a real job." And that stuck <laughs> with me. It was my own words, you know. And I said, "Well, someday I have to use that." Yeah. And yeah. so, of course, I use it in the book. It has a literal, but it also uh, has a figurative meaning too. You know, it's used twice in the book, and you know we can g- go over that at a later yeah, point. Yeah. But um, I think uh, you know you always start with something. Uh, for example, I was doing an interview with a woman about kidney swapping, who had partaken mm-hmm. in the kidney swap, which is one of the stories, the swap. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, I had this long interview with her. I had to get that was part of research. I had to get some, you know, factual uh, facts behind me about mm-hmm. the process, et cetera, and and get into her her psyche, into her her experience. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that my sort of ear stood out up at the end, she told me about uh, just an episode when she and her husband were were doing this and recovering about. Uh, some ducks, ducklings that had been in a pool. And that, it's a little thing like that that I, she had no idea that I could use and go off on. And that became a big metaphor for me in that story. Uh, so I think, you know, you're taking fact and, uh, and you just, you know, begin then to take off and uh, create. You create with uh, creating more characters, going deeper into characters, creating different situations. Mm-hmm. Um, different, giving your characters beyond the identity of where who you might have gotten this suggestion from. Sometimes you don't even know a person. You're sitting, you know, eavesdropping in a restaurant. Very, very careful <laughs> when you're in a restaurant because you never know who's sitting next to you. Especially if they're jotting something down. Don't think they're just taking notes. They're right. They're writing down what you're saying <laughs> because you sit there and and listen right. and you'll get ideas on not only how to say something but what well, some yeah. uh, some topics too. And, uh, you know, and then you just, uh, you take off on that. You don't even know that person, that situation, but then you're about, you begin to create. And that's the fun part of it. You know, you begin to, it's the one thing I like to say in fiction writing, you kind of play God. You can mm-hmm. do what you mm-hmm. want uh, mm-hmm. as long as it it's, uh, has some verisimilitude and it <laughs> makes sense. You can do what you want. Do you find yourself daydreaming a whole lot? Daydream a whole lot, um, yeah. and when I have time, I suppose. 
<laughs> I suppose. But I think people people think that writers, um, you know, they wait for inspiration and yeah. then they'll sit down and go, and that's not true at all. Uh, you know, you have to look at it. It's a job, and you go to work every day, wherever that may be. For me, it's um, this small room, messy room, in the attic. I'm like the crazy woman in the attic. And, uh, you know, you go there, and sometimes you uh, don't get much. Whatever you're working on, you don't get much out, but the few lines, and sometimes all you do is revise and and mm-hmm. other times, maybe you get a few pages, and wow, that's a good day. That's a great day. And you mm-hmm. just have to uh, be—you have to be disciplined to be a writer. Uh, you mm-hmm. have to be able to work alone because mm-hmm. it's kind of lonely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be able to not really like the limelight, or we probably would have become actors, you know, instead. <laughs> but we sort of like to be in the background. I like mm-hmm. to see my name places. I don't particularly like to appear or be places that much. Um, so, you know, you have to enjoy uh, being that way. You know, and I, and I think now uh, I hadn't even really thought about it. I, I didn't have brothers or sisters, and, you know, I, I did a lot by myself. Uh, I knew how to entertain myself a lot by myself, I was in an adult world a lot, and I did do a lot of eavesdropping on my mother's telephone conversations, you know, <laughs> on a lot that was going on because I didn't have another distraction. And it was yeah. far before the time of uh, computers and iPhones, so they didn't have all that to play with and, and distract right. me. And we had a, lived in a very small apartment, and I wasn't able to turn on a TV whenever I wanted, and I wasn't going to be able to do it in the same place my mother was on the phone. Mm-hmm. And um, so I absorbed a lot. And I lived a little bit in a more of an adult world, and I knew how to be alone, I think, you know? Mm-hmm. That's probably more than you want to know about that. But <laughs> No, that's fantastic. It reminds me a lot about me growing up in Malaysia in the sense that you're right, because you're talking about self-amusement. You don't have a whole lot of that, so somehow you play in front of your parents or whatever you do, and one can't help but to not necessarily intentionally eavesdropping in adult conversation, but you get caught in the drama. Mm-hmm, the story exactly. Thing. Yeah. And so, if you're curious, you certainly do. It's interesting to you. That's correct. That's correct. So true. What makes a good story? What makes a good story? Um, I think, you know, definitely, of course, you have to have what we always call the hook, the grabber that takes someone in. Uh, and I think... Um, uh, I, I think you've got to take somebody somewhere. Uh, a, a friend of mine, a very good writer, told me once, you know, uh, a reader will go anywhere mm-hmm. a writer takes them, you know, as long as you give them reason to do that. You know, if you do it well, they'll go anywhere. You know, you, there's nothing is, is too outlandish. And uh, I think you've got to give them enough incentive, enough to, to buy in and come along, you know, for that ride. Um, you've got to dig deep, make your characters really come alive, make your scene come alive. I remember Gabriel Garcia Marquez saying once uh, he was very frustrated and uh, when his friend uh, asked him, Carlos Fuentes asked him, Fuentes asked him why, what was wrong, and he said because, you know, he wrote about a fictitious world called Macondo, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. said, well, because it's, it's hot, you know, in Macondo, but it's not on the page. So you, know, you have to be, you have to be able to yeah. uh, to yeah. make that page alive and 
you know, I think that's what does it. You have to draw your uh, readers in. You know what it's like when you can put a book down at any point, and you really don't care if you ever pick it up again. Yeah. And uh, and that point where the other times where, you know, you can't wait to get back to the next reading. You hate to put it down. You want to go mm-hmm. on. I think, you know, that that's what makes a good book, wanting someone to go on. I love when someone says to me at the end, is there a sequel? Uh, yeah. I yeah. Like, no, but they're sorry <laughs> that there isn't. That's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Do you use your writing to express yourself or just to entertain others? Uh I think that um I say I would say that that's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um you know I'm a fic- I write fiction primarily. Uh I'm initially trying to entertain with that. Uh it's different than occasionally I do write essays, but primarily I'm writing fiction. But in doing so, uh, then I find that you know social topics come up that I want mm-hmm. to bring to light. Sometimes I intend well. to do that in my book. And sometimes uh, I say, ah, oh, but then there's this, then there's that, and and I really need to talk about that, and this really has to become an issue. And um, my so there, then my characters might not hold my own view, but what's important is that the issue is being tackled. It's usually some mm-hmm. important social issue, I feel, of the times, or whatever the times are that my book is taking place in. And in that way, I guess I am expressing a need of my own, you know, somewhere along the line, my viewpoints are being, I'm, I'm writing for myself a little bit, um, mm-hmm. but I also never lose sight of the fact that, you know, it's this is not nonfiction, this is not essay writing mm-hmm. that I am trying to entertain, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So what is the inspiration behind Thieves Never Steal in the Rain? Hmm. Well, I, I don't know why or how, but I, I began thinking about how much of our daily our daily lives seem to be spent dealing with loss. I kind of started with loss. And it's funny because people don't always pick up on the loss aspect when they read this. I'm not sure that's a good or bad thing. <laughs> uh, but that was a, you know, I that they don't see that every character is dealing with, with loss, every aspect mm-hmm. of loss. But to me, I, I just thought, you know, we're constantly – constantly dealing with loss. In in a day, we're always searching for keys that we've lost or cell phones or where did we park the car we can't remember or we lose our train of thought. Mm -hmm. We we lose blood. We get hurt. We lose jobs. We lose identities. We lose self-respect, weight, uh, pets, marriages, our health, our minds. You know, eventually Mm -hmm. we lose our lives. Mm -hmm. It sounds very depressing. It's not, but it's just a matter of that we are (laughs) always... Always, if you think about it, I don't think you can get through a day without, you know, having loss be in some some way, you know, a yeah. part of it. And um, so I wanted to write something on loss, but that said, I wanted to also write about love, the all-time healer. You know, it's ever-present. Mm-hmm. It gives us strength to carry on. And uh, the situations in these stories, I think, push people and their love to their limits, and um, uh, whether or not they become stronger as a result or they fold, you know, how they react to their their uh, loss. And uh, I think this is crucial to their own well-being and that of their, their relationships, how they react to this, how they, how they use their love, too, to help one another. Um, so uh, I'll go back to my, oh, well, I didn't, I have one of my writers I didn't mention, 
mm-hmm. uh, is Daphne du Maurier. And mm-hmm. um, I, uh, she actually was one of my favorite authors, and I loved her um, because of, uh, you know, her subtlety in, what, in, um, in her dealings with the supernatural. You know, I've just mm-hmm. always been taken with the supernatural, the extrasensory perception, uh, the forces that exist kind of like radio waves that everyone is capable of picking up, but not mm-hmm. everybody tunes into. Right. And at least I believe. And uh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, we call it ESP. My husband calls it ESPN all the time. So as you can <laughs> see, he's not picking up on it very well. <laughs> um, how's your ESPN? He told me. But... Uh, you know, the notion, I was always taken with the notions of the spirit world, reading, you know, more about it, taking courses um, with different interpretations that people have uh, in the afterlife or not afterlife, but mm-hmm. following death and particularly reincarnation. It just fascinated me. And, uh, you know, I remember one of, uh, I read everything that De Maurier has written, but one of her short stories, and she was a wonderful short story writer, uh, don't look now uh, amaze me because there's one character who's blind, but her her perceptions are crystal clear. Her ESP, she's a psychic. Another character mm-hmm. believes in this woman's abilities, woman who has lost her child, but is blind to her own. She possesses them, but doesn't see them. Doesn't see what they foretell to her. And then there's a third, her husband, who does not believe in the psychic's capabilities, and he also ignores his own, to a point where he's the one who doesn't realize that he has several times foreseen his own death, but he doesn't even, he doesn't even see that. Uh, and it's that other dimension, you might call it, that we, we might fall into from time to time, um, where it's like, you know, is it reality or moments of insanity. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can tell I was, a, I was a Twilight Zone junkie as a child. <laughs> and again, even there, there, there's that subtlety. Because it's not fantastic like science mm-hmm. fiction. It's not uh, just mysterious like a whodunit, a formulaic whodunit. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, characters rooted in everyday events. And then there's that twist. You know, that mm-hmm. eerie veil drops. Everything comes into question. And nothing's ever the same again. And that's kind of what I think I've tried to do in Thieves Never Steal in the Rain. Suddenly mm-hmm. there's that. Does that character exist or doesn't? Where did this child's mm-hmm. father go? How did he disappear? Was he real? Um, was there a ghost? I mean, everything just kind of uh, makes things a little more uncertain and a little more eerie. And I like that. I'm glad you answered the question from that perspective, because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is the fact that do you believe in the supernatural? Mm. Yeah, well, I guess, um, I mean, I guess I do. I do. I believe in, I do believe in a spirit world. Um, I do believe in, uh, at least for a time after people pass, that there is a connection to a spirit world, uh, whether then they move on to it. You know, or they stay here. Yeah. No one ever knows. We don't really know. Um, right, right. Um, but uh, for sure. But uh, I, I do believe. I mean, I've taken courses where people have channeled, and I, I believed it. But um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't. I don't um, have those those senses that acute. Uh, but um, I certainly believe in the ability to 
that that it's strong that the, that we can send messages. I mean, my family mm-hmm. does believe it. You know, they mm-hmm. no one laughs at me really anymore. They sort of they know <laughs> they believe. <laughs> they say they take they say yeah. Well, that figures. Yeah, you know that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I said, I think that everyone has these capabilities. We all do. I know we do. Mm-hmm. Just some people don't tune into it as well, you know, or I don't see. want to, don't choose right. to, I think. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I have probably the most important question. Mm-mm. <laughs> Are you a great cook? Yes, I am. <laughs> That's interesting that you said that. <laughs> you asked me that, but I I think if I, if I said... Oh, I'm okay. Oh no, everyone, my family was. Oh, come on, mom, don't be ridiculous. You're really <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, yeah, I'm, I, I'm good. I, um, I've cooked, God, my whole life. Of course, being Italian, you know, you kind of are born with that gene uh, <laughs> in your genes there. And uh, I, I cooked at a very early age. My mother worked, and uh, so I, I used to first she would semi-prepare meals, and then I would get them ready because I had to have to feed my father who went to work at night again. He'd come home and then go out again, and then she'd come home from work. And then by the time I was, you know, before even high school, I was just, even before that, I was just cooking meals. You know, every night I made it, I just did cook whatever I wanted, shopped, got whatever I wanted. And, um, yeah, my mom was a good cook, and I think what made her a good cook and it's not just the family the, tra- the traditional food the, that the culture hands down mm-hmm. um my family in italy they're, they're wonderful cooks and i carry that with me but uh she had a curiosity she was always collecting recipes and i can't even tell you how much an unbelievable <laughs> i've recently had to go through them it was it was awful but no it was it was overwhelming but uh and categorizing i was not nearly as accurate and orderly as my mother but i i think it's good that i still you know i can uh i always say the the, the sign of a good cook is not that the person who can who cooks this gourmet meal you know mm-hmm. two or three times a year it's a sign mm-hmm. of a person who within half an hour can get a really great delicious, nutritious, appealing meal together, mm-hmm. um, tasty, and, uh, you know, every day after day after day. I mean, I think that's the sign of a good cook. And uh, and I, I'm glad that I still read the paper in the morning and I'll come across a recipe and I'll still cut one out and I'll, you know, and I'll just say, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. you, you should mm-hmm. never, sometimes I think, oh, don't do that. You've got so much. And mm-hmm. I think, no, you should never lose that curiosity to you know to enter another culture make right. a, you know another world do something different uh, you can always learn something and uh i think that's maybe another sign of, uh when someone's a good cook when you you know you want to keep uh you want to create keep expanding your repertoire i might say so Are you true. A good I agree. Cook, yes i agree with what you're talking about in terms of a good cook is someone that can go into the kitchen and whip something up within 30, 45 minutes and not have this major ramp-up event that you're thinking about three weeks down the road kind exactly. of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes a big difference because that's the old-fashioned way of cooking, mama's kitchen kind of thing. You know, you go in there, that's your domain. See what you, you got. Whip it up. That's it. <laughs> that's that's right. it. Yeah. I had to ask that question simply because Chapter 2 says something about deluxe meatloaf. So I figured, oh. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a woman. 
Um, Rosemary, right, the agony aunt who has that column, and, and she always includes, I enjoyed making that up. I don't know anyone who's ever done this, any columnist, but she always uh, puts a recipe onto her advice letters because mm-hmm. uh, she feels that, you know, it's a lost art, but, mm-hmm. which I do feel that has happened. There is a, cooking has become a lost art in many mm-hmm. respects, and uh, and nurturing will really, with food, will solve everything. As we see, it doesn't solve everything in her own marriage, <laughs> but, which comes <laughs> to cruel reality that she's been giving everyone else advice, but she has kind of missed the boat on her own marriage. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, cooking is uh, always appears somewhere. And again, in the, when in the scenes from Italy, I think we you know we talk about, it, and that's quite right. accurate. Um, what happens there, you know, for an event, and the food is there, and and you leave, uh, all the guests have left, and it doesn't seem to a dent doesn't seem to have been made because there was so much food <laughs> laid out. Would that challenge us in writing the book? Um, yeah, well, you know. Um, some of the challenges were, uh, you know, after all, I, as I said, that um, I decided to write, um, in, instead of a novel, um, I decided to write um, a book of shorts. I started with a short story. This is what happened. I had written maybe one, maybe two short stories. And then I thought, you know, um, then I got this notion of, of loss and, and uh, and I thought, well, why don't I expand this to really write this type of family saga? Uh, but I I wanted to do it using the short story form. Um, why did I do it? One reason is I think I just like the short story form, as I mm-hmm. said. Uh, and uh, and I thought, you know, I wanted to challenge myself. I really wanted that challenge of of doing that because. It's not just stories. I've done that. I've written collections of short stories. But these are, it's different than disconnected stories. These are linked short stories. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they tell the story. Uh, someone was recently reading the book, and she said to me, you know, I, I just started, sometimes you do, with, as you do with a book of short stories, you just pick the one that's maybe the shortest at the time because you don't have a lot of time mm-hmm. to read it at that minute, or you, you um it sounds interesting, so you flip around and you just pick different stories. But she said, suddenly I realized what you were doing and that. I said, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. <laughs> I said, these are linked short stories, and you have to go from the beginning to the end in sequence. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe I should probably have have had a little note on, on that in the book. So um, the challenge was uh, is that the lives of the these characters are constantly intersecting, uh, and the and the plots are constantly progressing. Mm-hmm. And it's different from chapters in a novel in that each story has to be able to stand on its own. That's mm-hmm. the other thing, pretty much each story. And yet at the same time, you have to provide enough information in each story to carry the other story's plot lines along so people, mm-hmm. so it makes mm-hmm. sense, uh, you know, transmitted uh, mm-hmm. in, in a different way. So mm-hmm. it's challenging. It's a challenge to do it. Uh, I'm glad I did it, though. I really enjoyed doing it. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Please give us a synopsis of the book. Okay. Well, um, it's the story of family. Um, they're an Italian-American family. They have ties to Italy still, part of the family. There were several brothers, and most of them came, left and came to the United States, and one brother chose to stay. He stayed with the parents, and he remained in Italy and raised his family. Uh 
then these brothers had children. They all had daughters. Uh, you may ask me why I did this. Um, I So I'll answer it now, even though it's not part of the synopsis. But um, I did not have brothers or sisters, even though I was part of a large family. But I always... Uh, you know, I always hated that notion, that phrase, the only child, the only child, you know. And my parents got a lot of grief for only having one child as though everything was in <laughs> someone's power, you know. And it used to pain me that people did that to them. Uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to write a story where everyone's an only child. <laughs> so they're all, all these brothers had one daughter, and they're all the females, and, uh, and, um, and so there the story revolves and is told through the lives of these five female cousins who are all only children but, of course, have a very tight connection um, mm-hmm. with each other and the rest of the family. There is one character, Joanna, who I believe functions more as the main protagonist because mm-hmm. her story runs you know, like a thread throughout the book, comes up mm-hmm. even in other people's stories more referred to. And we have more stories that are only about her, and we begin with her, and we end with her. Mm-hmm. And um, their personal stories, you know, of these cousins is constantly, these women is constantly intertwining and intersecting with one another's lives as uh, they deal with the challenges of motherhood, marriage, and the ramifications of loss. Um, Joanna struggles to save her marriage uh, and her talent. She's a painter mm-hmm. that's lost her, her, she had a quite an extrasensory ability that gave her uh, the ability to to give paint her style of pain. She's lost that after the death of her child, and she finds this solace in the conviction that her daughter lives on in the body of another child that she's met in Italy. And this notion is not supported by her husband. Uh, Nancy has uh, made a decision to lose a kidney in an innovative 12-way kidney swap in order to save her husband's life. And now that jeopardizes her last chance for motherhood because she's in the process of adopting this child from France, which she met, as you know, in a very strange way as she came mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to encounter another strange way. Uh, Barbara is kind of a hoarder, a hoarder of antiques of sorts, and she f- physically possesses and identifies with everything she she's collected, uh, including companionship with this ghost. Uh, that she thinks she's gotten rid of in her home. Uh, and then we see what happens to Barbara. I won't go into detail there. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of supernatural coming in there. Angie takes a, is a, has a drastic measure to lose weight, to regain confidence. She's been obese uh, um, mm-hmm. her life. And she wants to get some self-esteem, but in the process, you know, she be- starts to lose her identity and, uh, again, takes her to a to something that is, uh, I wouldn't say quite paranormal, but something that is out of reality. And then mm-hmm. comes, she comes, brings to light a lot of issues that she really wasn't facing in, in, her, in her normal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rosemary, mm-hmm. we've already talked about, the agony aunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, Let's see uh, who's left. Do I have them all? Well, I guess Mm -hmm. that um, throughout the book, the lines between what is and what appears to be blur, you know, as and I think that's as it is in life. And uh, I think uh, it it tests the beliefs and the sanity of the characters at times. Really, Mm -hmm. the sanity they're pushed to the level of of insanity at some sometimes. They thinking that they might themselves be insane. Others thinking they are. 
so uh, that's kind of the uh, the basis. Of course, there's um, well, we also have the connection um, of the children, these children, mm-hmm. with um, their parents too. So that's mm-hmm. another level of it too. It's not it's, so it's mm-hmm. uh, not just the women and their relationships. Yeah. Sure. What you covered, it's basically about life, living. Absolutely. Five different perspectives, people living their lives, and how it's interconnected because of family, love, mm-hmm. and relationships. Did mm-hmm. you do a lot of research before writing the book? You know, uh, there are some books that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you really need to do a lot of research. Um, say my last book that you mentioned, sometimes it's... It, uh, Snows in America. I did a lot of research for that book, uh, years of research for that book, about a woman, you know, living in uh, from Somalia, then who comes to uh, live in the States. But for this book, um, there, I, a book like this, there really wasn't a tremendous amount of um, of kind of research that I had to do. Uh, I did have to uh, talk to people who had gone through some of the things that, um, you know, that I write about, as I mentioned before. I had to certainly get facts. You'd have to get facts about scientific facts, facts about you're talking about organ planting, maybe certain facts about adoption in another country or things like that, but uh, facts about surgeries and and, um, and weight loss. But... Uh, from then on, it's really more it's more creative. There isn't that much uh, research in this this type of book. What makes you choose the various characters for the book? What makes me choose the various characters? Yeah. Um, well, I think that um, you know I try to assign um, uh, I try to create five characters with different identifying characteristics. I really try to make them different even though they had such a shared experience. Um, for some, it was, uh, you know, I tried to give them physical, different physical appearance. That was, and then they, their physical appearance was extremely important to their character. For, um, for some, for others, it was their strengths, certain strengths they had or weaknesses. They all have weaknesses, I mean, as in, like in life. But some, it's, mm-hmm. uh, their strengths are greater. Their weaknesses are the, the greater characteristic. Oh, they have different approaches to life or a belief system or a way of dealing uh, with adversity. Uh, they all have their own special relationship with their husbands or boyfriends and mm-hmm. their parents. Um, the fathers, as I said, who were brothers and immigrants. Their mothers, uh, who came from, many of them from different, several of them from different ethnic backgrounds. They all have their unique personality traits. So we have all that, you know, mm-hmm. in acting in on, on uh, playing in there uh, in the story. And there's a lot about uh, the parents, and particularly with Joanna and uh and her father, and her mother, but mostly her father. Yeah, so true. How has your life experiences influenced your writing for this book? Mm, well, as I said, I grew up clearly in this large, <laughs> uh, tight-knit first-generation Italian-American family, much like the Ficolas, uh, where my cousins, as I said, were like siblings, mm-hmm. and our parents were, you know, another set of parents. Um, this was an experience for me on both sides of my family, too, which is unusual. Some people say, well, I was close to my mother's family, but not my father's yeah, or yeah. vice versa. But we had it on both sides, and we still do. Um, we also have this part of our family that remained in Italy, and we're close there to them. 
and that's kept us bound to tighter maybe to our culture. Some, most of us, some are not as close to Italy as some others of us. Mm-hmm. But it's also resulted in some salient differences between, you know, the two generations that have grown up here as opposed to there. You know, we who have grown up here have been exposed to multicultural society. We have, uh, we've intermarried. We have fortunately mm-hmm. attained a little higher level of education. So uh, our behavior is... Um, well, it's similar in respects. We have a shared culture. It's very different, too. And I think I, I tried to get some of that across, that while relating that there's wisdom there's, that's been gained for me on both sides of the ocean, I used Joanna's relationship with her uncle in Italy mm-hmm. and that with her father here to do that, you know, to see mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. kind of contrast a little bit of the difference. Yeah. Um, I think Joanna's relationship with her parents, particularly her father, are very close to home to me. I mean, I know they are. Um, they're different. They're not exact, but they're not this exactly us. But they're cer- it's certainly close to home to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, basically that's you know the experience, and mm-hmm. also what I just told you about creating that, making them all only children. I think that was right. really putting part of myself in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. What was the most difficult thing for you to write about? Um, well, probably getting into the um the desperate mindset of a woman who suffered the loss of her child mm-hmm. uh that was hard you know if you have children that's that's you know paramount that's the worst uh mm-hmm. your worst fear of something happening to your child and uh it's it's hard to get into that mindset that that has actually happened and the ramification then of that reality you can only imagine on on a fragile relationship with a husband but now becomes fragile um mm. to me it seemed like you know a logical um sequence to that uh, because the death has brought out all that they ever disliked about one another and you can think in a relationship how naturally there are things you don't like and then suddenly everything's you know in the forefront now everything is irritating everything is is a is a disruption disruption and I, I think it's something we can all relate to and dread at the same time, mm-hmm. fear. Uh, and also, uh, when I started writing this book, my own parents were, you know, very, they were very healthy, mm-hmm. sound mind, and had a body. Uh, and much of what I wrote about their failings were imagined. They really were imagined. Uh, and it, so it was kind of easy for me to do that. But this is... Um, very much a book about the supernatural, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's true that as I, I wrote many things that I wrote about in this book, and some as I was writing came to pass to the point where you know my husband said to me, "Would you please stop writing this book because <laughs> <laughs> the things were not very good that were happening." Yeah. And um, you know, and and so as I when I went to do this rewrite, uh, things had changed for me. Um, my, you know, father had passed and my mother, you know, came, has had a lot of difficulties. And uh, writing about that, Joanna and her father now, Marco is his name, was a little bit more difficult. I had a, it took on a really different, uh, different turn, uh, different meaning to me. It was amplified uh, when I talked about their relationship, their death, and, um, you know, then when I was making it up. You know, so mm-hmm. it was a, it's kind of a lot easier to do it when I was making it up than uh, when it had really occurred. Very interesting. As a writer, how do you know when a story is done? Well, I have this 
it, it's kind of, you know, when you're first learning to write, you're first doing, you read a lot of books about uh, and diagrams about how to do a story, <laughs> you know. Um, but I have this kind of inner clock, especially when I'm, when I'm writing a short story. I'm just mm-hmm. going along, and then I just reach this point in the story, and then something tells me, okay, time to, you know, come to climax, time to start, wind down. I just sort mm-hmm. of know. It's just natural. Um, because a story can be written so much faster than a novel, since it revolves around one Timing seems like a natural part of the process for me. You know, it's a, it's a bit mm-hmm. different with a novel because it's such a long process. It involves so many different subplots. I think it's more calculation than internal rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Although the clock functions that way too, as I described, maybe for individual chapters in a book. Sometimes that mm-hmm. you know that does work that way for a chapter. I can know when I'm uh, you know. It's enough of a chapter when I'm how I want to end that chapter, but the the story, a story, I really have this internal clock. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. What do you enjoy most about writing the book? What did I enjoy most about writing this mm-hmm. book? Yeah, um, I think that you know writing those borders of the paranormal. Um, Trying to be like Daphne du Maurier. <laughs> I want to be Daphne du Maurier. Now everyone will go out and read Daphne du Maurier, not me. And that's yeah. okay because I think she's yeah. great. Uh, yeah. Great and probably forgotten in a lot of ways. But um, yeah. uh, I like to go back and dig up the old writers that, and, and wonderful and some of the classics that we kind of tend to forget about. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, trying to create that underwriting tension, you know, that shakes things up, that makes the reader stop and say, uh, whoa, wait a minute, what just happened? Where are we? Where are we headed? This is really creepy. This is really eerie. Uh, what's mm-hmm. happening on this train here? Um, you know, what's happening? How did this happen to this house? Uh, you know, who is this girl? And what what other forces are there? Just trying to, how was I going to inject the paranormal, the supernatural in this Um and uh, I think that was my that was the challenge, but it was also I really enjoyed doing it. I, I really did, and I always enjoy dialogue. I always enjoy, um, you know, creating characters. That's the characterization. But mm-hmm. I I think that that was um, that was different for me, and and that was my ambition that I enjoyed about writing this book. How did you deal with writer's block? Writer's block, yeah, that happens um, to us all. Um, and what I do, the the only thing I really, you know, I try a lot of things. Um, some people say, well, all the great writers were alcoholics, so maybe I should have a scotch in the morning when I get up. <laughs> if I ever did that, I would be like out cold for the whole morning. That would be that. My writing would be done. Uh, so we can go there. Um, I um, I deal with it by reading. I read. Mm-hmm. Particularly the genre, genre that I'm uh, I'm writing in. That's the only thing I can really do. You know, I tr- you can try meditation, etc. And nothing really seems to work for me clearing your mind when my life gets busy and I'm just I'm just really stuck. Uh, I I just start reading. I feel I'm still I'm in, I'm in my craft to some so to speak, and yeah. I'll just read, 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 read. And when that doesn't work, I keep reading and read more <laughs> until it kind of becomes infectious. And suddenly, you know, you've got, it's like greasing wheels and they start mm-hmm. turning and then you get compelled to go back to work. And mm-hmm. it's not always, doesn't come, you know, really easily, especially if you've had a, 
uh, a long hiatus, and that happens sometimes. You know, life gets mm-hmm. in the way for everybody, and you just have to stop sometimes. Uh, and, and that's very disruptive to the writing process, uh, especially when you were working on something. It's very hard to get back to where mm-hmm. you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you hope that when you do get back, maybe you get back to a better place. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, you look at it at a different angle, and uh, it's become something better than what you had initially intended. You know, mm-hmm. so I've certainly been in that position, and um, and that's kind of what I do. It trying not to get too discouraged and uh, just read. The worst that could happen is I'm reading some good books, so that's <laughs> right, right, right. That's good. Very interesting. That's true, though. What would you like for the readers to gain from reading T's Never Steal in the Rain? I I think above all, an appreciation for their family, you know, no matter how large or small your family is. Uh, and um, and for what individuals might be suffering as a result of loss, I think we, I've heard many people say until, you know, something happens to them, they say, I had no idea, I'm so sorry, I was not compassionate enough uh, when such and such happened to a person. I really had such a cavalier attitude. I had no idea how something like this would affect me in this way. And I hear mm-hmm. it so much. And um, I think if we could have that that thought ahead of time, you know, be prepared mm-hmm. for that, uh, would be good. We'd be more tuned into that, other people's uh, situations. Uh, and, then, of course, that desire to tune into and use that means of communication that is Far less obvious than the computer or the iPhone. I think, you know, try to tune into that uh, extrasensory perception you have and um, and do some questioning uh, the way, you know, we see in, in Thieves Never Steal in the Rain, particularly at the end when we're talking about afterlife in another way. Sure. Um, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to look at it. And, uh, you know, I would say try to tune in there. It's fun. <laughs> Wonderful. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, you can certainly go to um, any bookstore if you love your local bookstore, and we love to support independent bookstores, or any of the the chains also. And if it's not there, you can always have them order it. They'd be happy to look it up and get it for you. Um, It's online, naturally. uh, You can always get it online, any of the distributors online. And uh, you can always go to my website, which is um, com, and there you'll see links to purchasing books, and you can that would go straight to um, uh, you can purchase them right for, uh, off of the uh, website. You'll also learn more about what's happening there, and there's also uh, reading group guides. Uh, for several books, and there is for this book. So if you have a reading group, uh, I really encourage people to use reading group guides. Mm-hmm. I've gone to, I, I like to go to some uh, reading groups that I'm invited to when they're reading one of my books, if I can, if I can do it. And, you know, I've gone to some, and I, you know, I've said, uh, gee, you know, who haven't used a guide, you can really do more. You can do more here than, you know, it's nice yeah. to have coffee and cake and everything and chit chat and <laughs> say a few things, and that's part of it, but you, know, you can do more. And uh, I think reading group guides, a guide really helps people get going and, uh, you know, in their discussion. So true. You're looking at a story, and then you have the book, and then now there is a story behind the story, the backstory in terms of 
there's something to be learned from reading books. You've learned tremendously since you were a child growing up, and then when you have mental blocks, you read books to inspire you. So in looking at your work in this particular book, what would be probably the one word inspiration that people can learn from reading this book? Well, I think, you know, what I what I've said before, to tune in, to tune in more to um not lose sight of of what's happening around us with our um what people are. People are constantly going through something, constantly. Mm-hmm. And all of us. And I think to kind of um tune into that, be respectful to that, see if you could play a part to help, maybe not. Sometimes the best thing to do is step away. But I right. think that um you know, I think that that's uh, that's a what's something that someone can take away. Uh, you know, really learn from that from reading reading my book, and I and I think it's and and to also spur someone on to read more uh, mm-hmm. books uh, similar books like that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, taking one aspect of it that you enjoy and. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily all of the themes, but something you enjoy, and then you'll find something else like that and, and yeah. go on that way. Read a lot about what you like. You know, while you're mm-hmm. into that certain area, read on that area. You know, mm-hmm. people get stuck on, oh, and we don't know what to read for our, our <laughs> book group. We don't know what should I yeah. do. There's so much out there now, and there's a lot of lot of good literature out there. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I, that's what I would say, that it spurs people on to read more. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. What I gather from the book is a story about love, sacrifice, mm-hmm. the challenge that we go through, and decisions we have to make, the mm-hmm. implications of our decisions that we make. Mm-hmm. And in itself, it's a journey that we take until, in this case, the end of one's life, so to speak. Right, right. What is next for you? Next for me uh is I am working on uh, another a novel. This is a novel this time, and uh, I'll say that uh, I'm at uh, an earlier stage with it, in that I'm I'm still getting acquainted with my characters. <laughs> it's a true thing that writers say. You know, I'm also learning who they are because uh, you know you, you you don't really know until you start writing um, who they're going to be, how you develop them. Then you get to a point and you say, ah. Oh, now I know. Now I know who she is. I know who he is. Uh, you don't really know right away. And until you do, um, you can't, uh, you know, you, you can never progress that far ahead with the book. Um, you know, at least, not, you know, you can do your first draft. But, boy, you've got to really know who these characters mm-hmm. are before you can you can uh, put them in inside any plots. And so you go along, and then they evolve and it's such a good feeling when you finally really get a handle on who mm-hmm. they are and and they become their own you know their mm-hmm. own persons their own people and uh i think so i'm at that point i've gotten some not all um uh, so uh i hope that we could be having this conversation again in the not too far future mm-hmm. <laughs> about a new sure. book fantastic sure as an accomplished author what three things can you suggest to new writers to fine-tune their craft? Well, as I said, I, I think to get material mm-hmm. uh, and to learn how to write, especially write good dialogue, I say eavesdrop, listen, <laughs> listen. That's that really, you know, and, and, you know, that's the really big thing. Also, 
to get ideas on plot too. Um, listen, talk to people because people engage people. People will talk to you. People will tell you things you'd be amazed, you know, particularly women. Women talk a little bit more than men. But, I mean, you just go to the grocery store and come back in five minutes and tell my husband about someone I met, live story, and he'll say, you got all that? You know, I said, oh, yeah, it was easy. Picking out apples, you really? I said, oh, yeah, it was really easy. But, um, you know, listen, that's, again, tune in and talk to people. Uh, and when you think you've gone, when you're writing and you think you've gone deep, I always say this, deep into a character, go deeper. Go, you know, stay there, stay there. And don't shy away from what's painful because that's generally the best stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, read and also rewrite. You know, you've got to learn to rewrite. You've got to love to rewrite. You can't, uh, you, know, you, you can't hate that. You've got to love that. You have mm-hmm. to get excited by that. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. By the way, we're coming close to the end of the hour since our show is about people, family, and living life. Would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Yes, I would. And I think, um, you know, I had an uncle who was quite a character. And when he kissed you goodbye, he said, he had a lot of sayings, a lot of little adages. I think he made up. He's a bit of a Yogi Berra type. But uh, he would kiss you goodbye, and then he would often say, and if you see someone who, first he'd say to you, if you're driving, make sure you have a car. Very corny. But then he would say, and if you see someone who needs a smile, give him one of yours. And in honor of my family mm-hmm. and the fecal of family, and this was my Uncle Willie, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's the recipe that I, I'd like to share with you today. If you, if you see someone who needs a smile, give him one of yours. That's wonderful. That's a beautiful recipe. I think that just engages people at the soul-to-soul level. Mm-hmm. So true. That's fascinating. Any last words for peace don't steal in the rain? Well, I just, I hope you read it. I hope you enjoy it. And um, I hope you pass it along to to others if you like it. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marissa, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning. My guest will be Jonathan Robinson. He is a psychotherapist, best-selling author of nine books, and a professional speaker. Jonathan and I will be discussing his latest book, The Technology of Joy, 101 Best Apps, Gadgets, Tools, Supplements for Feeling More Delight in Your Life. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Marissa, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Johnny. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.